Our podcast, the Kosher Sommelier Podcast, is sponsored by Liquid Kosher. Liquid Kosher is a curated wine experience for those seeking quality kosher wines that are vetted by wine experts. That wine expert being me. We have relationships with family-owned wine producers around the world, our partner winemakers, and we are sourcing excellent wines that come direct to consumer through our website. The best and the most exciting feature of Liquid Kosher is our Cellar Wine Club, which is a quarterly subscription that opens the door to rare and limited production, limited allocation wines. Join us, join the club, get a club box. We will feature some of the world's most exciting and interesting kosher wines that are produced only by family-owned wineries that are really punching above their weight. So I invite you personally to come and enjoy the Liquid Kosher selection and the Cellar Wine Club. Liquidkosher.com. Please check us out. This is the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. I'm Andrew Breskin, the Kosher Sommelier. Each show, we will discover some of the amazing stories and personalities in the world of wine. Wine tasting, wine making, fine dining, and one of my favorite subjects, the wine business. So pour yourself a glass and enjoy the conversation. On this episode of the Kosher Sommelier Podcast, we are joined by my friend Elizabeth Kratz, who is the editor of the Jewish Link magazine in New Jersey. And the uh, crowning duty, if you ask me, that she maintains there is the wine guide, the annual kosher wine guide that they produce. Um, it has a massive blind tasting operation. Um, I was actually a judge um, many years ago in the previous iteration of that wine guide. Um, it's a whole to do, hundreds of bottles of wine being tasted blind followed by the editors putting together in-depth articles on various uh, wine personalities in the kosher world and beyond. Um, I was very happy to be featured, I think it was the year before last, in their edition about sort of my personal journey. Um, And I spent a lot of time talking to Elizabeth um, up until that moment. And then after we were done, um, I thought it would be cool to get her on the show and just get a little bit more background about how she got into wine and journalism in general. And uh, we had a really exciting chat, and I hope that you uh, get to enjoy it. So I wanted to welcome my friend and my colleague, Elizabeth Kratz from New Jersey. We spent a lot of time together on the phone over the last year and change because we were getting to know each other in advance of um, you sort of taking over the responsibilities at... um, the Jewish Link Food and Wine Guide. That's what it's called, right? Something like that. So the the Jewish Link Wine Guide, which is the flagship publication, uh, is an annual publication that comes out uh, pre-Pesach, as you know. And uh, this past year, the year that uh, we had your profile in it, uh, this was actually our second annual um, because we had taken over the publication of the Jewish Weeks wine guide during the pandemic basically they ceased to print in like something like i don't know april or may 2020 and there was no wine guide so we continued onward and worked that year and so the first wine guide that came out from us was in 2021 so so we spoke at length about just getting to know each other and also just 
uh, about my program and what I offer and my own background, et cetera. And um, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun yeah. chatting for all those time. And yeah. uh, I thought it'd be great if you would come on and talk to everyone about, you know, how you got into wine. Um, you know, I guess probably before that would be a little bit about your background um, as a journalist. And that probably would uh, would take you into the, uh, the wine journey. And then, um, you know, we'll talk maybe a little bit about the kosher uh, wine community and your observations um, as, you know, someone first looking in from the outside and now very, uh, very well entrenched. And, um, you know, some more ideas about how, you know, through your work, building more community and building more communication and, and storytelling about the, uh, the personalities and the places behind kosher wine. So if you don't mind... And if any of that sounds good, then maybe you'll let us know a little bit about uh, your background, how you got started, and um, and then we'll go from there. Sure. That sounds really fun, though I'm very honored to be asked uh, by you to do this, Andrew, because I would say I feel very strongly that I'm more of like an every woman kosher wine drinker. And while I am always working and learning uh, and educating myself, my sense is always to try to represent the the weekly wine buyer. So I'm like I I generally tend toward like my monthly column tends toward writing about more affordable wines. But just I just so people know in advance that that's my that's my interest because that's just who I am. I'm a I'm a balabusta, I'm a Jewish mom, and I'm somebody who is watching the uh, budget in a household as well as someone who is willing to spring for special occasions. But that's who I am now. I don't know if that's who I'm going to be in another 20 years, God willing. Um, but I'm happy to give you an intro to who I am as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, it's it is definitely... Um... I, you know, I, I think that when I talk about wine with people and, and I just did a big tasting um, recently in LA and finally after talking about the wine for an hour, people said, how much does it cost? Oh, and, right. Right. and it's interesting because, you know, there's, you can have a, you can have a great wine that's not so good and you can have a, um, a cheap wine that's fantastic. And I just like to personally gravitate towards things that are of value at whatever price point they're at. I mean, if, if right, it's right. That really does bucks, speak to me. Yeah. If it, if it's a hundred bucks, it better, it better give you a hundred dollar experience. If not, you it's, know, yes, so. that's, that speaks to me very strongly. So I guess, yeah, I will, I, let me tell you a little bit about who I am, but, um, Generally, it's a little bit like it's a journey. I'm on a journey just like everybody. And um, I had my first real wine tasting with a random friend of my brother's uh, in a, about 20 years ago. And his name was Josh London. And Josh uh, London today is, is like, yeah, is like yeah. you know, my friend, my colleague, uh, one of my writers uh, at the Jewish link and at the wine guide. And he's a very good friend. He's like a friend of my family. And I've really known him since I actually I've known him since around 97. So it's probably been more than 20 years at this point. I don't know. It's been a long yeah. time. He's a, um, he's a, he's a fixture in the, uh, in the, I guess, kosher wine world and also to an extent the spirits world. Yes. Um, 
Yes. Yeah. And he he was like we were living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And also down the street, I met all within the same year or so, I would say I met our neighbor. We all lived on Q Street in Georgetown, uh, Gomley O'Cronomer. OK, so another, so, um, <laughs> you know, it was kind of like the uh, the, the original uh, kosher food and wine uh, aficionados at large. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's super cool. I know that right. um, I don't know how much um, uh, Gamaliel is doing right now in, in that stuff, but I mean, yeah, he's he has a way with words, and he's a he's a very uh, deeply thoughtful person as well. Um, right. And so that's a that's a uh, that's a fantastic couple of mentors to sort of uh, um, just discover, you know. Right. Right. So and so I was working as a journalist. Uh, they were both, they both had other jobs, but were writing about wine already. And they were also very involved with the, the wine email lists and, you know, all the, the, really the historic precursor to what today is the Facebook, uh, kosher wine sharing stuff. But yeah, like Gamla gave me for my birthday, that first year, the Rogov Guide to Wines, I don't know what year it was. I probably still have it somewhere. The only one I ever had, but it was it was great. And uh, I only learned later that pretty much everybody who is involved in wine now is, was involved with that email list and including many of my people I call friends and, you know, fellow colleagues and tasters. Um, yeah, that was... um. That was pretty crazy, and I I um I referred to it the other day. Like I think I called it a message board, you know, whatever. Yes, yes. You know, right. And um, that was that was good times. And the, you know, so you would log on, and everyone would have a screen name, and their screen name they have a signature on their thing, and um, there'd be all these people who were commenting and debating and and uh, sharing tasting notes and. I mean, the the craziest thing that would ever happen would be you'd log on and Daniel Rogov um, would post um, that he tasted something brand new, and if had an incredible score, then it would just set off like a frenzy of of uh, of buying and and selling and and um, and it was it was like he was Robert Parker, you know, right? And he said something. Remember the. Um, the one of the more interesting things that happened was that he the Yard and Rom came out, which I don't even know if they still make that. I don't know, you know, I'm not up to date on anything from Golan Heights Winery whatsoever. We don't get it in California. I never see it, so I don't know about it. And it, he gave like a 93. It was a 2006. And then he thought about it for a day, and he's like, you know what? When this wine is mature, it's going to be even better. So I'm going to give it like a 96 because he's factoring in like future appreciation of, of uh, quality. And mm-hmm. then that was the highest Israeli wine that he'd ever scored. And that was like the beginning of the end for <laughs> kosher wine collecting. Right. And, and uh, so, yeah, it was great times. And then I, I believe he famously uh, announced his own death on the message board after he had died. Yeah, that was kind <laughs> of a trip also. And then, and then all the stories came out about how Daniel Rogov wasn't his real name. Who was he really? I think that he was married and he like pre-wrote his uh, his I'm dead post. And then, you know, I think that his wife or his assistant, I think he had a number of assistants, um, mm-hmm. or at least he said so. It was very unclear after he passed away what exactly 
um, was was man and what was myth. But that right. was kind of part of the that, that kept it interesting, you know. Right. What's actually funny about that is because that was such a story, and I vaguely remembered it, but I wasn't on the board because I just wasn't. I was definitely in a in another place in my wine journey at that time, but doing a deep dive last year when I was looking at like years of things and I needed like, you know, research about like what years things started and stopped. And I found not the original post, but the first thing I found was David Rocca's like shocked email that was like, is this a joke? Like, are you like, cause that's not funny. And that was, that's basically still lives somewhere on the internet. So it's kind of funny for, for the old timers that that's the first thing that comes up. Yeah, that is, that's a little bit interesting. I, I remember the, the post and the subject <laughs> of the post was Rogov obit period. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think David actually uh, met him one time. Right. Well, I know Josh and Gamliel also had met him. They, he was a real person. I don't yeah. know if that was his name, but. No, it was something else. It was something else, and I, it, I, I think the people who knew him in real life called him by his, uh, his actual name. Super interesting. Yeah. So you're, yeah. Uh, you're discovering wine. You have all these friends who are extremely well connected in the community. Right. Okay. So I, so like I said, we were living in Washington D.C. All of us, all of us were single. Though Josh got married to Anne uh, pretty early, uh, in, in my knowing him, uh, but. Um, Basically, I I was writing for a magazine that covered uh, the Pentagon, and I was traveling a great deal, and I got it to see and hear from a lot of different kinds of people and individuals um, having t- to do with international relations and uh, military policy, which is could seem completely random. But the fact was, I was in a lot of rooms with ambassadors and statespeople, I would say. And something that happened was I wrote an article um, that predicted which seven of the 10 European nations would be admitted to NATO that year. And I can't remember exactly what year it was, but something like 2002, say something like that. And that article, first of all, I correctly predicted which seven of the 10 nations would be admitted. And that article predicted the sort of the that information before the New York Times and before, uh, you know, Jane's Defense Weekly and before a lot of the other publications. So that gave me an opportunity and it got me noticed uh, and it got me a fellowship to study in Germany for a year uh, as a journalist. Oh, wow. So you got some street cred. Right. So, I, yeah, I, I kind of was They're like, oh, maybe you maybe this lady knows something about something. So right. I it really did translate. It was like at that point, the the most influential article I had written. And I actually did write my first article about wine the following year while I was in Germany. So okay. that was the first article I ever wrote. It was about a winery in um, Saxony. And you could probably Google it, but it's it was owned by this guy called um, Prince Sir Lippa, L-I-P-P-E. And he was like some like royal from like 800 years ago, still holding on to his property 
from feudal times. He got it back from the Nazis and he had he had turned it into a winery, not kosher, of course, uh, but it's called Schloss Proschwitz or something like that. P-R-O-S-C-H, maybe W-I-T-Z. But it was really interesting and I met him and I the soil there is red and I didn't know that. And I was just traveling because I was with a big group of people doing um, different kinds of work. And I happened to interview this guy and it was just super interesting and fun. And um, it was really the first time I was able to combine uh, my interest in sort of, I guess, the sensory experience of life with writing, with facts. And so that was a lot of fun. And I remember I remember the soil so well because it was red. And it was like this crazy, rocky soil. And it was just a lot of, it, there was a very big uh, sensory experience uh, with r- visiting a winery. And so that sort of, I guess that, I guess I would say that sort of started me off on my interest. Um, and I really am like you, I'm Jewish and I'm very strongly identified with the Jewish community, uh, but I generally only taste kosher wine. And that's for the most part, that has pretty much been how I have been my whole life. So I really am an ambassador for kosher wine and I want the kosher wine that I taste to be great. And I know what there is out there a little bit just because I've traveled and I've seen it, but I really, I really want the kosher wine world to improve and to have options. And actually one of the things I was thinking about basically, um, two weeks ago, because the day you emailed me and said, do you want to be on a podcast? I was, I had just thought that day, gosh, I'm trying a Blaukenfrisch in Monchhof, Austria, right this second. And it's really too bad that I don't have another one to share, to, to compare and compare, compare and contrast. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I think we, we spoke about that together. Um, uh, in the build up to last year's uh, profile, um, you know how you can get. I think I used like a. I think I used the example of pre rot in Spain. Like you can get a kosher pre rot. You can't get ten kosher pre rots. You know, right? So right. yeah, but it's, it's it's funny. I mean, it's maybe not funny, but it's you know, kind of full circle that you were in um, that part of the world, Germany, Austria, having a um, indigenous varietal to that part of the world. Um, you know, twenty years after you know, the beginning of your. Uh, wine uh, journalism uh, career. It's also interesting. A lot of people are saying this because um, we speak to a lot of winemakers and speak to a lot of uh, you know sommeliers and and whatever. The the power and the impact of going to wine country and seeing it, and even someone who's you know foreign to wine, but just going in there and and it's such an experience, and it's I think that it's really impactful. Um, and most people are sort of disconnected from, you know, farming and nature or whatever. But when you see like the vines and the soil and the stones and the wind and the clouds, and it's just like, um, and how that all gets infused into the process of a grape turning into wine. I think that it's ex- extremely, extremely impactful. Definitely. And I, I definitely think the wine tastes better when you taste it in the place where it was made. It just yeah. it there there's just this je ne sais quoi. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I know what it's called. It's called, I mean, it's true. It, it's <laughs> literally, you know, it's, 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 I, I don't know how it could be quantified or if you can do a study or whatever, but like, I, I always tell people like, everything tastes better at the winery because you go to winery and you're like, you're in the, you're in the mood, you're in the zone and then right. you start tasting stuff and, and they're, they're giving you their little sales, you know, sales pitch and talking about how like, Oh, we weren't supposed to make this this year, but the winemaker went to the vineyard. And he said, "Oh, what's this?" I said, "Oh, it's uh, you know, it's a uh, Sangiovese." And like, "Oh, well, we've never made that before, but it's so beautiful." And like, you're like, "Wow, it is so beautiful." And it's just like that whole. And then you come home with like forty cases of Sangiovese from some winery that like never made it before. Like that, that is a real thing. But I mean, it's maybe more- it's because the storage is so excellent because the wine never had to go anywhere. It didn't have any bottle shock. It wasn't sitting in any warehouses um, with questionable temperatures. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, that there's definitely that. And you could measure that probably somehow. But I, I do think that, you know, from a retail point of view, you know, when you're there and you're in it, there's definitely something to it. But for sure, you know, being at the winery, being in the vineyard, I was at, um, Terra Gratia Marciano mm, um, a right. couple months ago before the summer and I tasted um, this is not a plug they're not a sponsor although if they want to be I'll take it um, I, I love them so it's it's all good I they they poured the 18 and the 19 Terra Gratia and the 19 Marciano I've never tasted better wine I mean like I have but I mean I've never tasted better wine at one time altogether in that moment because you're there in Napa in the winery with the winemaker having like probably the best, you know, kosher Napa cab that has ever or will ever be made. And that's it. You know, right. you can't, you can't, um, you can't dispute that experience as, as they say today, it was, it's my, uh, my personal truth or my, my lived right. experience. So, um, there's definitely a lot for that. And obviously the, you know, with you, the, the proof is in how it, you know, it's changed your life, but definitely, uh, definitely added a dimension that perhaps wasn't there in that specific, uh, uh, form. Right. Agreed. And in some ways ever since then, because I live on the East coast and because there's like, um, you know, it's more of a tasting experience with the winemaker at best, uh, bringing in his wines and talking us through them. Um, the ex- experience is, a little bit more stunted or, you know, less broad. But on the other hand, it, if you've been to a place, you, you sort of are able to call upon the memory and the imagination and sort of, sort of make up for it the best you can. And I think that's what tasters do when they're like, like I'm not a critic by any means, but when people who love to taste wine get together it's, it's always a better experience. And that's why I always enjoy now uh, tasting wine with the group. And this yeah. is a, it's a, it's a, it became a much bigger part of my life. I guess we can sort of fast forward or ease into how the Jewish link wine guide got started. Uh, yeah. With- yeah. No, I, I remember it was, um it was in um, Manhattan at the uh, now defunct. Um, what was that newspaper called? The Jewish week. The Jewish week. And, uh, I was there one time I, I flew into, um, I flew in to be part of the blind tasting committee for a two or three day, uh, mm-hmm. uh <laughs> palate wrecking, uh, experience. Right. Um, and I thought it was really cool. I mean, I, you know, I, I 
I paid my own way to, to go because I just wanted to be on the panel and I wanted to have the experience, but it was, um, it was a lot of fun. And, um, I think that, you know, it was, you know, they say that no one brings out what's the expression about like, uh, you, you don't look like you're a fool until you do a blind tasting or something like that. Or, you know, I mean, just mm. the kind of stuff that would come up that would, to me would taste good. Um, and the kind of stuff that would taste bad that you find out afterwards what it was. It's a, uh, it's a great, it's a great humbling experience when you think, you know, a lot. Agreed. Agreed. And that's why I definitely do not feel that I could ever be a judge on this panel, though I have helped to organize it the past two years. Uh, but it is, it's very intense. And um, the, I mean, on the red wine, we, we did it separately over a series of like six nights, actually, because everyone was local in New Jersey um, this past year. But on the red wine nights, the judges uh, teeth were literally purple. Yeah. And that's, it's scary. It's like, Oh my God, what is happening to the enamel on my judge's teeth right now? <laughs> uh, it is not the there hand, anymore. <laughs> right, right. But on the other hand, uh, you know, this is what you do for love of kosher yeah. wine, right? Yeah, we, I guess it's, so. it's a labor of love for all five of the judges. Um, the, the team leader of which is Yossi Horowitz. Um, who is amazing and I've learned so much from him that I just, it's unquantifiable how much I've learned from him. And I'm just a huge fan of Yessi Horowitz. He's just extremely knowledgeable and cool. And he really answers every question. And I've asked a lot of dumb questions. So it's, he's a, he's a, he's a really helpful person um, for our team and for the group. And he's made us better uh, every year. I hope he, I hope we continue. All right. For the benefit of maybe not everyone who's seen this magazine or seen the publication, maybe just describe briefly what it is, what is the process, what is the point, and what it looks like when it's all done. Okay, sure. So this past April, the Jewish Link Wine Guide came out. It is an 80-page glossy magazine, It's um, and it is uh, packed with, um, this. I mean, the central portion of the magazine is rankings. So we had about 600 wines that were submitted to us for wine for wine rankings um, in many categories, including some categories for which we did not even do rankings. So we had to like, you know, either disqualify or figure out another way to feature these wines. Um, and also there are features in, in the magazine about the interesting places and people uh, in the kosher wine world, um, including yourself, Andrew. And we had a feature about you and your work. Um, but we also had uh, features about innovators who are working in the, uh, in the wine space in a few different capacities, uh, negotiants or uh, winemakers or sales representatives even, um, just because of how how hard they work or how intensively they, they, uh, they I guess, uh, emulate their message and, and, uh, and, and do ambassadorship for their labels, I guess. Uh, and we also had a, f- a few other fun features by... Um, 
by the people I mentioned before, by Josh London, by Gamwil Cronomer, also by Kenny Friedman, who uh, tastes wine as well. Um, and actually, just as a aside, Kenny, myself, and Greg Raker, who is one of the five wine judges for the rankings, uh, all took the WSET uh, Level 2 uh, award this past year that was offered in Kosher. And I believe all three of us are also moving on with that education process and uh, going to take the uh, Level 3 uh exam as well uh, how fun is that here i know so we're we're doing it and it's exciting for i think the entire kosher wine community because there are going to be people now a, a wider array of people with qualifications to taste wine who are using like these international standards um and know how to speak about wine in this in this manner that is sort of international internationally recognized a bunch of people saying uh, medium plus like it's uh oh. <laughs> right <laughs> say how's right. the uh, how's the steak cooked oh it's a medium plus with a little bit of a uh, mild acidity and uh i say it's a light garnet you know describing everything you know the way <laughs> excellent excellent yeah. it's actually funny you should say that because um I did have a period of time when I wrote about food a lot, and I I actually have a a, uh, a certificate from the the now defunct Center for Kosher Culinary Arts, uh, which is in Brooklyn or was in Brooklyn, and um, I wrote about wine for a long time after I did that certificate program. But I always felt like I didn't. It wasn't my first love. Like I, I like food a lot, but wine is so, in some ways, so much broader, and it's it it does it's hand in hand. But I really like the now the focus on wine uh, because it is um, it is something that is so special, and it's like it's it's has this piece of. I don't know. It's it has this piece of earth. It has this piece of sky, a piece of holiness. It's kedusha, um, and I just really I just enjoy the topic so much. And I I never felt that the food was something that I had the ability or skill with to manage. Maybe because it's even broader in some ways. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it, you know, the, I think that. You know, eight billion people are eating, but less than that is are are, uh, are drinking. But there's, it's definitely an endless topic. And um, you know, we spoke with a couple. We spoke with actually a master sommelier the other day, um, and it just it's it's not impossible. I mean, it's probably impossible, but the kind of depth and the kind of detail that you can go into in a, in a different region, a different style, or different philosophies, trends, etc. I mean, it's it's uh, it is overwhelming. There's a lot there, and when you approach it from the um, point of view that you'll never know all of it, but you're constantly learning, and that's probably the uh, you know the the best approach if you can if you can have a best approach. So you you were waist deep in the world of kosher wine for the last couple of years. Um, I'm sure you had plenty of exposure to the the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, mm -hmm. What is one like really interesting thing? If you can make one thing, or um, if you want to think about it, one thing that you learned about 
you know, kosher wine or the kosher wine community that you wish more people knew about? Okay. So I guess what I would say is it's probably not, not directly to your audience of the sort of the higher end wine drinkers, but it's, it's we've got all kinds of people who we've got all kinds of people, you know, people are wine lovers. People are not wine lovers. People are kosher lovers. People are just curious. You know, it's a big, it's a broad, it's a broad, broad, broad audience. So we're speaking to um, all kinds of wonderful people. So I guess what I would, the, the first thing I would probably always talk about is that it is possible to get a great kosher wine for $25 and under. Um, and you don't have to now spend what you had to spend 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago on kosher wine for it to be really good. Like, I think that the, um, that the quality has risen so much that the affordability scale has created opportunities in the affordable bottle ranges. So I think that's number one, but for me, the most important or interesting thing I've learned about kosher wine. Um, The other thing is that is the importance, I guess, of tasting and knowing what you're tasting when you're tasting it, I guess. Like I, I don't, I, I, for one example, I guess would be just because it's you who I'm on the phone with is the skin macerated wines. Uh, that Yakov Oria is putting out, you cannot taste that like without knowing what it is. So these these are things I've learned that um, I want to know, like, for example, if I have a white wine in the glass and it's sparkling and a little bit golden, I want to know whether I'm looking at a Riesling or a Chardonnay or something else. Uh, because if it if it like I need to know what it is in order to correctly understand what the winemaker was trying to do. Um, to so, create like, some expectations and, and, uh, and sort of frame, frame the wine tasting in the right context. Right. I, f- I mean, I feel like, so because there, there's this, like there's this, these certain characteristics of grapes that we try all the time uh, that I look for. Like if I have a Riesling, I'm like, oh, okay. Is there that little sense of petrol? Is there a, is there an apple? Is there a pear? And like, it really messes up my palate when it's like a Riesling from Israel or a Riesling from someplace that isn't, you know, making traditional Rieslings. And it like kind of freaks me out. I so, think that people drink Riesling just so they can say the word petrol. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe there's no other context there's no other context okay. for, for so, uh, all right forget that example then and put in a new zealand sauvignon blanc everybody knows right away if you if you taste new zealand sauvignon blanc what do you get citrus yeah. snapback grapefruit like you get it and if if i taste a sauvignon blanc and is it is not from new zealand um, I have very different expectations. So like nowadays I'm like, okay, if it's, you know, if it's not a Goose Bay O'Dwyer's or Rima Pear Sauvignon Blanc, which is the new one that came out this summer. Um, I don't know if you've tasted that one yet. But, yeah, like, I, I thought it was great. Are, I had it. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are the, 
Yeah, I agree. I had the, me too. Um, but I think those are the only three current kosher New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. Uh, are there maybe? Maybe. I don't know. I think we have uh, this this guy. Uh, well, you, I'm sure you know him, uh, Josh Reinderman, making wines in South Africa. Yeah. Who yeah. made something similar that sort of had like a sense of New Zealand in it. Um, and I don't know why, but it was his. I think it's his label Essa, and it was a it was a blend of Sauvignon Blanc with Semillon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I that think had that, sort yeah. of this same sense of like the 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 New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc citrus snapback. So so that's you know it doesn't have anything to do with petrol. So I can say it right. Yeah, you know what it is. I have a I have a great analogy for you. Uh, Riesling is to petrol what uh, Sauvignon Blanc is to cat pee. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if, you, if you read, if you so, Google Sauvignon Blanc cat pee, I mean, it's, right. you'll see. So, it's, so that's like the thing. thing about France, right? So, if you are trying a Sauvignon Blanc from France, you that's what you get. But that's not what you get when you're in New Zealand. So, right. like, all I these really, things are, yeah, these are really important for like food and wine pairing too. I mean, you can't, you, know, you have to know what you're doing, um, right? at least what to expect. I, you know, Sauvignon Blanc from that part of the world um, is not going to work the way a Sauvignon Blanc from Napa or Central Coast or from even from Bordeaux is, is going to behave in, in that situation. So that's for sure. Right. That's a great so observation. I, I, right. So I definitely learned that and a couple of other things from, um, I don't know if you even know about these podcasts that are online in, um, from UC Davis, uh, from uh, Maynard Amarine. It's they're like really old, and they're old recordings. And there's even video um, of his sort of. He was this massive expert, like kind of the father of California UC Davis wine making and teaching. And he his his podcasts are online and available. <laughs> It's That's like unbelievable. Cool. It's like you're yeah, getting a degree so, from Davis uh, in the comfort of your own home. Yeah. So I, I listened to all of them and he basically talks about the importance of he's I mean, he was teaching winemakers. So his perspective is different from mine, obviously. And he was talking a lot, though, about how to make grapes from other places succeed in California and whether it was even possible. Like, like these, these, these were in, it, this was back in the seventies and eighties before the whole Napa revolution, uh, really had begun. So it was, it's really interesting. Like the, the science doesn't lie. Right. Right. And so, doesn't change. Right. And also I would add that two weeks ago when I was with Julius Hafner in his beautiful villa in Monchhof, Austria, uh, in Bergenland, he basically doesn't use any chemicals in his wine. He is, he tries to be super organic. Uh, everything is natural. He's, he, I mean, he is certified organic as well as kosher. Um, so basically I was like, so how do you stop, how do you stop fermentation? And he's like, uh, temperature, I cool, I cool it down. Um, and he's like, I'm, he's like, I do physics. I don't do chemistry. <laughs> does he use does he he puts like sulfur and stuff or he doesn't even do that 
he he's very very low on additives um i do not know about sulfites but um uh basically stay tuned because i'm i'm going to that's going to be a feature in the uh upcoming next year's wine guide uh, my visit there um because i did spend the day and i had a great time um and i tasted everything and i brought home a lot of stuff and i also have a lot here um so, um, you know, because I was there, I had the opportunity to taste a little bit of uh, Austrian wine and, and get to know a little about that very unique part of the world, which uh, kosher wine doesn't get a lot of. Did you try the, um, the MAD winery? There was a, a Gruner, a Cab Merlot, and a Blaufränkisch 2015s. Is that, is that in a funny-shaped bottle? Uh, it's in a tall, skinny bottle. I think I I won't swear that I tasted it, but there was I've tasted a few Gruners this year. I'm not sure about the others, but I've tasted a few Gruners this year that were not made by Hafner, and that might have been one of them. Yeah, it's a 15, so it's it's been around for a while. The Blau Frankish is like seventeen dollars and a fantastic, fantastic wine. So it just shows the cool. potential of a. Uh, of that part of the world. I just wanted to ask you, um, as someone who has a professional credibility in uh, predicting the future, um, (laughs) (laughs) from a journalist's point of view, um, what do you see happening in kosher wine? What do you, what do you think is, um, where's the industry going? Where are the trends? And um, if you had to guess, you know, where are we going to be in, you know, 10 years as a community, as an industry? Okay. Well, I mean, I hope, I hope bigger and better. I mean, obviously that's what I always hope. Um, I think, um, the level of education can only add positivity to the kosher wine world. Um, and the rising level of education of aficionados or just, you know, appreciators like me, um, uh, I mean, I, I see myself as a journalist first and a, like a wine person or person interested in wine second. Um, but like there's 85 other per, per, uh, professions that could be involved in wine uh, on many different levels, uh, business wise, uh, you know, in the actual winemaking, you know, in the real estate, in the sales, et cetera. There's so many parts of um, of the wine business that are uh, available and open to people that I think that the level of education um, really could expand kosher wine quite a bit. Um, another thing I would say is that I would want the kosher wine world to um, get a little bit more recognition in the sort of secular community um, because the wines really are, as you know, becoming, uh, wines that get scores above 90 in, like, do you mean like in the, in the broader wine world, or do you mean in the Jewish world for the people who don't yet keep kosher? Um, the, the former, I would say, like, I, I mean, I was, I, I watched the decanter wine awards results pretty carefully, uh, because of course we had a lot of those wines in our tastings. And I was looking at those um, those numbers, and and they're pretty good. And it's I think the first year Israel's gotten multiple bottles above ninety, um, and it's it's in decanter, and this is like a really global organization. 
um, who are tasting like thousands and thousands of wines over a period of weeks, even. Um, so I really, I think that, I think that they were all, or almost all of the above 90 winners were Barkan, which doesn't surprise me because the high-end flagship wines from Barkan are made by a master of wine. Who's that? I think it's Ido Levinson. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I knew the name. I didn't associate it with um, with Barkon, but that just could be my limited knowledge of uh, what's happening in uh, in Israel. So Israel, yeah, right. that's super cool. So I do want I want the I want the secular or you know non kosher wine world and the kosher wine world to be in some ways um, interactive more. I guess that would be my goal. Um, because there are all these wines that are of excellent quality um, in the kosher wine world um, that could be sold uh, and could benefit, you know, the the Jewish vintners and the um, the kosher keeping community uh, salespeople who make them and sell them. Um, and there's really no reason why kosher wines can't be available on a more global scale. You know, I think that eventually, I don't think it's going to be universal in the least, um, but I think eventually a lot of wineries who are doing, um, not a lot, but a lot of qualifiers here, so you'll excuse me. But I think that some wineries at some point are going to say, you know, we're making some kosher wine and we're not going to, let's just make it all kosher and just be done with it. Right. So that is what happened two years ago uh, with Chateau Rubin, all of its French exports went kosher because of just simplicity they're like hey chateau rubin is doing very well in the in with in the royal portfolio and it's it happens to be kosher being kosher doesn't affect the rosé process apparently at all uh and they they just made the entire year starting in like 20 17 or 2018 something like that they it just all of the imports went kosher is that there was some um random rosé that came over through the uh non-kosher distribution channels that was kosher and i don't remember what it was called but it was like a a, a self-initiative from the wine ridges make this kosher wine and just pump it out into the marketplace and and not go through the usual channels i think we'll be seeing more of that too and a lot of a lot of the wineries, as the market gets bigger, and and um, you know, I don't I don't see the mavushal requirement uh, for every institution changing anytime soon. Right. A lot of wineries are just gonna you know put it out to market and see what happens. You know, the they they can just sell it in any channel. There's not like two different versions of Oreos. There's the OU Oreos and there's the OU Oreos and that's it. Right. And it's all and, kosher. And Trader Joe's, for example, the great equalizer of for, for us all, Trader Joe's is selling kosher wine alongside its non-kosher wine. And I don't know that it's only bought by Jews in like Kansas or, you know, Ohio or like wherever. They're selling Sarah B's, you know, mus- Moscato, which I know you don't like, but, or whatever, but like, I like Moscato, selling, but it's not, it's not my favorite version of it. That's not your, <laughs> right. There are wines being sold in Trader Joe's that are, you know, just sold in Trader Joe's. 
Right. And Sleep obviously they don't like check your ID when you buy them unless they want to check your ID for your age. Like they don't right. check whether you have a Jewish last name. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, they sell yeah. this like, you know, kosher chicken everywhere too. And all kinds of folks are buying it. So, um, yeah. but I, you know, there's, there's definitely, I think the reason it won't be as widespread as, as the Oreo factory is because, you know, the winemakers still want to, get their hands dirty and, and uh, pop the barrels open and, and, you know, not have to go through the steps of, you know, asking the guy to come over and unseal the barrel. Some people are less bothered right. by it than others. And, um, you know, it's just, it's going to be a function of individual choice and, and what makes sense for a particular winery. But, you know, there's, there's going to be a point where some larger, more notable wineries are just going to say, let's just do this. And um, I mean, Rose Camille, not to, you know, not to uh, pick on my own um, mm-hmm. my own brand over here, but they're they're doing it and they've been doing it. You know, you're not going to find like the Rose Camille with a Hexer and then a Rose Camille from the same vintage without a Hexer. It's all kosher. And when they shop it around to the local markets in um, uh, Paris and Bordeaux and and Barcelona, I mean, they're not saying like, oh, check out our kosher wine. They're saying check out our Pomerol, and it's it's working. You know, they actually used to have a huge market in uh, Kiev, which has been. Uh, not, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. no longer a big market for them anymore. So, also China, which is which is this before COVID, of course. Now, and you're saying also before the Ukrainian war, uh, which caused these massive like shipping delays of everything or shipping shutdowns. Um, China was a big um, a big receiver of all kinds of wines globally. And actually, another reference back to Julius Hafner, he said his suppliers or his buyers in China loved the fact that he was organic and kosher and put that in all of their literature in the liquor store, organic kosher, because kosher actually also means something in China and it has a positive um, kind of this clean connotation to it that they don't get locally. So they're like, they, he said that was his biggest market uh, before COVID. No kidding. That's very interesting. Yeah. Specifically China there. I think that, you know, they're definitely, they're making wine there now. Um, and they're going to continue to do so, you know, as the world sort of, uh, got smaller, but now gets bigger again. I think they'll, they'll be sourcing a lot of their own stuff, um, at home. And eventually (laughs) there's going to be probably a kosher Chinese wine too. And I'm sure it won't be too bad either. Yeah, I I mean, people, the the podcasts I listen to and the wine people I talk to are constantly like referring to these, you know, wines made in China or Asia that I've literally like you, I mean, in the kosher wine world, it's completely foreign. Um, and the, I just the idea of, of how that would happen uh, certainly would be a topic of another podcast for you, I'd say. But a lot, I really, that would be a real story. It would be a trip, but it's going to also be a, a foregone conclusion, which is kind of funny and also a little bit unfair to like, you know, someone asked me like, do you want to have like a, go to Greece and make kosher wine? I'm like, I would love to try a bottle of kosher wine from Greece, but I don't want to have a container of kosher wine from Greece, you know, uh, <laughs> you know the heritage, like wine regions that are not getting the respect and not getting the attention. Uh, a number of years ago, there was some good, um, really good uh, Romanian red kosher wine. Okay. Really, really good. But it's like, who cares? 
you know, there's there's not enough there's not enough people to to make a big deal about it. Right. If you want a prediction, I would say the likelihood of an Asian kosher wine happening would probably have to happen from somebody in Asia getting involved with Chabad and saying to their Chabad rabbi, listen, let's make a couple of barrels of kosher wine like for the year. And let's just like buy the grapes and do all the work ourselves and be garagistas. And that could happen. Like, yeah, if, if like, it didn't happen already, I mean, we have no idea. I don't think that we would know right away, but you know, I, right. I all the, all the, uh, you know, religious folks who are in charge of, uh, uh, Jewish life in that part of the world. Um, there was probably a point in the last two years where they couldn't get their container of Kiddush wine or grape juice and they had to figure out what to do. So I'm sure that that seed has already been planted, so to speak. But I'm, I also seem to recall that the Rothschilds already have a foothold in, in the Chinese wine growing situation. So maybe that would be an avenue to, um, to, to see a kosher wine from that part of the world. Um, but my personal punch list of, uh, of kosher wine from random places, um, you know, I, I, would put China towards the bottom of that list on my own interest level. I would love to see from some of the more European heritage sites that we haven't quite flushed out yet. Um, and also locally, you know, there's San Diego was actually the largest wine growing region um, in California for the first, the first uh, chunk of the 20th century. And also the last chunk of the 19th century, most of it was done down here. Interesting. Um, but there's a huge wine growing opportunity taking place right now in Baja, California, which is about an hour and a half drive um, from San Diego. The Guadalupe Valley is producing all kinds of wines. And it's also a matter of time before some, some folks from Mexico city say, Hey, you know, we're tired of paying crazy import taxes on, on kosher wine. We've got this beautiful region um, within Mexico and, and let's make it happen. So I can definitely see that coming online and also um, having immediate uh, success. So Something to look out for. Right. I was also interested very much in, I was actually maybe going to go to the ice wine harvest uh, at Sheldrake Point last year. I didn't make it. Um, but um, in the Finger Lakes in New York, uh, uh, this guy, Ari Lockspizer, I don't know how well you know him. Yeah, um, I know him well. Oh, super nice, super nice guy. But so enthusiastic and so like so interested in bringing kosher wine to the community um and i just really i thought that riesling was great i thought it was great both years um it got a very it was ranked very highly in our in our um in our wine guide and i think the, the following years uh wine was even better yeah i've been following their stuff uh for a while in the uh the finger lakes and i mean talk about value i think picking ice wine would have been super cool to you know get like a steel pail and and drop your frozen berries you know clinking know. one by one into the thing so that's definitely uh uh definitely something to uh anticipate doing in the future so that's that's i really would awesome. love to yeah yeah we'll talk about the, a sensory yeah. experience yeah, I would say one of my life goals would be to go do that, um, go participate in a in a crazy harvest like ice wine. Um, yeah, I really did. I I a lot of it I would say of harvest really is just work, you know. And maybe for me, I would say going for a day might be reasonable, but like the just the amount of work in terms of um, 
you know, picking the grapes for this, you know, very short window of time. And as a team, as a group with a lot of different people from a lot of different nationalities, uh, it seems like it would be some, you know, something for that I would really like to experience and write about. Yeah, yeah it's very fun. And, um, you know, I, I like to mention that, you know, people work so hard to make wine yeah. and when, and yeah. when people like ourselves are talking about it and telling their story and pouring their wine and, and in my case, selling their wine, sharing their wine, it really honors them and it really honors and, and, um, and glorifies their hard work and appreciates it because it's, it's, it's really, really, really hard to, to do this work and to, and to be up at night and to, and to wake up, you know, at before dawn and get out there and the physical labor and the emotional worries about, you know, how it's going to turn out and, and the twists and turns of winemaking. Um, it's, it's a whole thing. So it's, it's terrific when we can, we can share that story, experience it and uh, really honor everyone and their hard work. Agreed. Yeah. This has been super cool. Thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciated, uh, you know, you sharing your background and um, it's fun to predict the future. So we got to do this again in a little bit and see how we did. Amazing. Thank you, Andrew, for all you do. And, you know, looking forward to a, to a good Rosh Hashanah and a good year and looking forward to having your selections in the Jewish link wine guide next year as well. The deadline is going to come up in, um, in uh, this coming December. So for any uh, winery owners out there, please let them know. All right. We will consider everyone duly notified. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Kosher Sommelier Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where you can be part of the Kosher Sommelier community. That's Kosher, S-O-M-M. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.